right, well, again, good morning, welcome. My name is Aaron, I'm one of the pastors here at Trailhead, and uh, it's my honor and privilege to get to join you on this first Sunday of the new year. Happy New Year, everybody. Hope you're having a great year so far, Um, and by so far, it's been a day. So hopefully yesterday wasn't horrible, right? And then you're having a good year, so that's great. Um, But seriously, as we are um, moving into this new year, uh, we are going to kick off a new series this morning, and um, it's called You Can Change. So it's like the most blatant, literal title we could come up with for the series. We're going to be talking about change, and we're going to talk, talk about what change looks like. Specifically, uh, what we want to do in this series over the next couple weeks is talk about how we at Trailhead engage in this sort of change process. There's a whole bunch of different words for what this, what, what we call this when, when people change, um, specifically within the context of church. We call it sometimes discipleship uh, or sanctification. That's actually a word I'm going to be using quite a bit this morning. Sometimes we call it spiritual formation. Um, all these different words that just mean this. When you are one way, and you become a different way, what does that process look like? Okay, Um, you could say what we're going to be talking about over the next couple weeks is what we would call at Trailhead, sort of our philosophy of ministry. What do we believe Scripture teaches about how people change, how people are transformed, um, how people are shaped spiritually. And, and based on what we believe Scripture says about it, how does that influence what we as a church do to assist in that process? Because what we believe about how people change is going to shape how we as a church engage with you, with each other, as we lead each other into times of change, times of transition, times of transformation. So what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks uh, if you're new to Trailhead, uh, specific, I mean, if this is your first time ever, welcome. We're so glad you're here, so glad you're joining us. But even if you've been here for a while, some of this stuff we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks, you may have heard before in other forms. Maybe you've kind of caught, you know, an idea of this, glimpses of this. We just want to make it really explicit. This is who we are. This is what we believe, not just what we believe doctrinally, not just what we believe the Bible teaches about who God is and who Jesus is, but what we believe about people. And because we believe these things about people and how people change, then this is how we go about approaching things. And you might have said, you may have been here for a little while, and you've been, I think some things are a little different here. This isn't quite the approach I'm used to. And we're like, yeah, that's true. Here, let's just lay it out. So this is kind of who we are and not in a sense of like other people are bad or anything, not anything like that, but this is just who we are. And that's what we want to talk about as we go into this new year. This is who we are and how we approach specifically how we approach spiritual growth or spiritual transformation. Now, when we start talking about that, when we start talking about changing, especially at this time of year, for many people, and I would even include myself in this, you, you start to get that kind of itchy, you know, kind of almost nauseous kind of feeling like, oh great, here we go again. It's January, so we have to talk about how am I going to fix myself this year, right? And you've already seen, probably, probably seen multiple posts or articles or whatever you want to call about 
22, because you've got to have 22, because it's 2022, 22 ways to change this year. Or you, New Year's resolutions never work, but now this year, here's how they can, and all this stuff. And, and if you're like me, you hear that and you're just like, uh, not again, right? Because the, I, it's just like every single year, and, and it's not just at the new year, but especially at this time, you're just like, oh, I don't want, I just don't want to think about this. I don't want to hear about it. Why? Why all this? Why is it? Why does the idea of change make so many of us feel so just uncomfortable? Just that, that uh, kind of a feeling. And I think, I think a big part of the reason that we feel so much tension around the idea of changing is because many of us have bought into some lies about change. In fact, there's two really pernicious lies about change that, especially for Christians, not, not just for Christians, but especially for Christians, that I think these two lies really make it difficult for us to approach the idea of changing. And here's what they are, two lies that we tend to believe about change. Number one, I have to change to earn God's love. Or number two, because God loves me, I don't need to change. Now, those sound like two totally opposite things, but both of them, both of them can sink into our minds, or maybe honestly, for most of us, one or the other is going to be more dominant, and can really get us to where the idea of, of change, transformation, spiritual growth, whatever you want to call it, just feels really, really tense. Like, so this first, if you believe this first lie, that you have to change to earn God's love, if you believe that, if you get that attitude in your heart, then any time you start to talk about or think about changing, and you start thinking about things in your life that you're not happy about, things that you know are not the way they should be, you just start to feel a weight. It's just this oppressive stampede of just shame. Yes, I know all the things I'm doing wrong. Yes, I know I'm not measuring up. I know I'm not good enough. And it just feels like, and so then we come in and, we're, and now we're, we've got this sermon series called You Can Change. And you just go, all right, here we go. Here we go again. It's another one of those, I'm doing everything wrong. Great. Okay. Just fire away because I'm just so used to hearing. And, and I know I don't measure up. I know I'm not good enough. I know I've got to do better. I've got to try harder. I've got to make it better so God will love me more. Or, or honestly, I said, I, I have to change here in God's love, but you could just erase the gods there and just, I must change to earn love. Because even if you're like, well, I know God loves me, but, but I don't know if anybody else loves me. And I have to change in order for somebody. You could, you could fill in, you could put a blank there and fill that in with it. I have to change to earn my spouse's love, or I have to change to earn my parents' love, or I have to change to earn my kids' love, or, or my friends' love, or my followers on social media's love, or whoever it is, right? Because anytime you get in your head, the only way people are going to love me, the only way I'm going to be worthy of, of approval is if I can fix this. And that is just a weight. Now, we fight really, really hard here at Trailhead against anybody believing that lie. Like, we push super hard in our preaching, in our community groups, in all of our ministries to expose that as a lie. That is a lie. You do not need to do anything to earn God's love. 
And we'll say it over and over and over again. And we're going to say it honestly. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture today. And you're going to see it again in the passage. Because it's all over the New Testament. Because that's a lie. It's not true. It's not true. Nothing you can ever do can earn any more love than you already have through Jesus. It's done. It's settled. He is enough. That's a lie. That you have to earn God's love, that you have to change, that you have to be different for God to love you or to love you more. But does that mean, then, does that mean that the idea of change, the idea of growth, is just like off limits? Like we can't, we, we shouldn't even be talking about change because we don't have to change for God to love us. So let's not talk about change at all because we don't want to get in our heads that we have to earn God's love. You're good enough as you are. So let's all just stay exactly where we are. Is that what Scripture teaches us? Is the truth behind Christianity that because God loves you, He loves you so much, and He accepts you, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus did for you. If because that's true, does that mean, eh, you know, whatever? Just kind of live. And there's some stuff you don't like, whatever, it doesn't matter. Because you're good enough, because God loves you, so don't worry about it. Don't change. Don't try to fix those problems. Is that what we're saying? Now, here's the thing, and we're, like I said, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture together in just a minute. You know, though, if you've tried to live like this, it doesn't work very well, does it? Like, you can try to say, like, well, you know, I'm okay because God loves me and so all this stuff, but eventually, that's just going to lead to problems. Because all of us have, all of us have things about ourselves that we would like to change, don't we? Like, I, I, I debated, like, maybe we need to start, start out, it's a series about change, so we, probably what we need to start with is, like, in this message, I'll just help you kind of surface some things that you need to change about. I don't need to do that, do I? Because you've got, if I had, if, you know, if I pass out a piece of paper and said, on, on one side of this piece of paper, I want you to write down, uh, you know, everything you like about yourself, and on the other side of the paper, I want you to write down everything you'd like to change about yourself, and on the front side, you'd be like, uh, I got a sentence, Right, maybe you're asking somebody next to you, can you think of anything else for this? Like, what, are, what are some things I like about myself? Then you flip the paper over and you'd be like, just one sheet? Can I get some extra? Because right, we all have, like, okay? And, and so maybe sometimes for a time we want to say, pretend, like, you know, there's nothing. I'm good. I'm good the way it is. And, and I'll feel better about myself. But, but on the inside, Part of the reason that we feel that tension when we start talking about change is all of us have things we'd like to change. So, what does that look like in light of Scripture? If God really loves us, totally, completely accepts us, does He call us to change? Let's take a look at a passage of Scripture today. And, and, and I want to look at this scripture because this pushes back against both of these lies, both of them. 
okay? And instead, it pushes us to this truth. So here's the bottom line. Here's kind of the, 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 the point of the whole sermon today, okay? So if you space out or, or if you're watching online at home, and I know there's like 54 kids running around your house, and so if you miss everything else, here it is, okay? The point today is this. The grace of God, the grace of God is our motivation and our engine for growth. It's the grace of God that both motivates us and allows us to change. As we lean deeper into God's love and God's grace towards us, we won't stay the same. We will be transformed. And, though, and this is how we, you know, five weeks of talking about this, there's got to be an and there. So, and, and this is the bigger twist, maybe, as we are changed by God's grace, we aren't passive in that changing. We don't just sit back and transform. We are called by God to be active participants in the change process. Let's look at this passage. Uh, I want to look in the book of Titus today, the book of Titus chapter 2. So if you would turn to Titus chapter 2. If you're here with us and you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one under your seat in front of you. So you can grab that, turn to page 998, and we're going to read Titus chapter 2. We're going to read verses 11 through 14 together. Okay, Titus 2 verses 11 through 14. Would you follow along with me as I read? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The word of the Lord. All right. So um, let me give you a little background on what this is because I started, I mean, just looking at it, this, this is right in the middle of this book of Titus. I just pulled this, so I don't want to take this out of context. I want to explain to you what this is. The book of Titus, um, what you have in your Bible, the book of Titus is actually a letter. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a man named, any guesses? Titus, good, good guess. It was, uh, Paul wrote this letter to Titus, okay, and um, Titus was a pastor. He was a pastor in a fairly young church in Crete. Paul, uh, what his ministry was, he traveled around the world, or at least around his region of the world, planting churches, and he would, he would come into a region that didn't know or didn't have Jesus followers. He would tell them about Jesus. They would believe. They would start to form these groups, ecclesia, which means churches, together, and then he would appoint or, or bring into leadership men who would then lead the church, and then he would leave and go plant more churches in different places, but he wrote letters often back to these pastors who were serving in these churches he had started, and we have some of them preserved for us in the New Testament, and this is one of them. So he's writing to this young guy named Titus, who's the pastor over this church in Crete. And what we're reading here, verses 11 through 14, is right in the middle of the letter. So up to this point, what he's been writing to Titus is instruction 
for how he should be leading the people in his church. And Crete was a pretty diverse area, and his church, from what we can gain from this letter, was pretty diverse in a lot of different ways, not just ethnically, although there was ethnic diversity, but there was also obviously, or maybe not obviously, but there was gender diversity, there was age diversity, because he's talking about older people, younger people, he's talking about men and women, he's talking about socioeconomic diversity, because he's talking about servants and, and, and bosses or masters or whatever word you want to use for that, and so he's talking about all these different things, and he's like, Titus, teach the people who are in this life stage this, and teach the people who are in this life stage they need to do this, and teach the people. And so there's a whole bunch, before you get to these verses we just read, there's a whole bunch of you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. A whole bunch of instructions, okay? And the letter itself is instructions. It's instructions to Titus. Titus, you should be doing this, you should be doing this, you should be doing this. So it's a whole lot of should. It's a whole lot of here's what you ought to do, okay? And so as you're reading this, as Titus is reading this, as he's sharing it with his church, and Paul's saying, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then he gets to this part in verse 11 where he says, for. And so the beginning of verse 11, when he says, for, what he's saying is because. Because I just told you all this stuff you need to do. Why? Paul, why should we do all that? Why should we do this stuff? Because honestly, what you're describing for us, if you read the book of Titus, what you're describing is really honestly kind of countercultural. Our culture, the culture we live in, says we should be living this way. Paul, you're saying we should be doing something different. Why? Why should we do something different? And so Paul says, because, for, because, and this is pretty cool, I, because, because, okay, I need to stop saying the word because, but we just finished up our series on Advent. And if you were here for us any time throughout the month of December, what we talked about with Advent was that there are two Advents, there are two comings of Christ, that he has come and he will come again. And you're like, "Uh, yeah, I thought we were done with that last week. Well, hold on, because look at this. This is really, really cool, because Paul says here, look, for the grace of God has appeared, this is verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. He's talking about that first coming that first advent, and then skip to verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, and he's talking about the second advent, that Christ will come again. So I, I'm sorry, I just thought this was really cool, because here in Titus, you know, we were looking in the book of John, here in Titus, Paul's saying, there's two advents. Christ has come, he will come again. And, and grace has appeared, the first advent, But we're awaiting the appearing of the glory of God. That will be the second advent. And so what Paul is saying here is that we are living in between the two advents. It's like we've been talking about. So, sorry, I'm kind of like geeky, like excited about this because like we did that series and now it just slides right into this one. So you're not, I can tell, you're all looking at me like, Whatever. So, um, it's probably the masks. I'll bet you have huge smiles underneath those masks right now, and you're like, this is amazing. So, your eyes just are betraying you. But anyway, so Paul is saying we live in between the two advents. He's saying, first, yes, God's grace has appeared. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We are saved, we are rescued. By God's grace. It's by His grace. It's not by our effort. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
What does he mean by all people? We have to make sure we understand the context here. Paul's been describing here in Crete, there's a whole bunch of different groups, right? There's, there's ethnic Jews, there's ethnic Cretans, there's ethnic, um, you know, there's, there's different ethnic groups, there's different genders here, because he's talking about men, women, he's talking about young and old, he's talking about uh, servants and masters, there are all these different groups, and yet God's grace, God's grace is sufficient for all people. No matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what your gender is, no matter what your level or, or socioeconomic status is, it doesn't matter. God's grace has appeared, and it provides, it is sufficient for everyone. Everyone. There's not a different grace for men and for women. There's not a different grace for people who grew up in this culture and people who grew up in this culture. There's not a different grace for people who are rich and people who are poor. It's all the same grace. It has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with our efforts. It has nothing to do with our identity. It has nothing to do with anything we've earned. It's all, it's all available through God's grace. But, but, we're still waiting, as he says, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Because we're not, we have not fully experienced all of everything made right. We still live in a broken world. Yes, God's grace is sufficient for everyone, but there's still tension and conflict so often between those different groups he just mentioned, right? And, and there's so often still brokenness in our world. There's still death, there's still disease, and there's still temptation, and there's still sin. We don't, we don't live in a perfect world. And the promise, the hope, the blessed hope he's talking about is that Jesus is making things right. He will one day make everything right again, but we're still waiting for that. The day is coming, but it hasn't arrived yet. So in the meantime, in the in-between, or as he says in verse 12, in this present age, what does this look like? How do we live in between the two? Because verse 11 is Christ has come. Verse 13 is Christ will come again. So verse 12 says, so what do we do in between the two? What does it say? It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. He says that we need to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What? does that mean? What is Paul saying here in verse 12? Here's what he's saying. In this meantime, in this in-between, we need to push away from, turn away from, uh, Bible-y word, repent of ungodliness and worldly passions, and we need to turn to we need to change to to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. We need to put off and we need to put on. There's things that are bad we need to get rid of, turn away from. There's things that are good that we need to turn to. We need to stop doing, we need to start doing. And even if you look at it, and this is, you know, what, what do we need to turn to? What do we need to do? We need to, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. The three, when we think about how when sin came into this world, this world is broken. We live in a broken world, right? 
What Christ has done by coming in and rescuing us, he's rescuing us from this broken world. We still live in the broken world. And how is it broken? When, when we fell, when you go back to the beginning of Scripture, we fell, we broke three relationships. Our relationship with ourselves, with others, and with God. And so when he says we're, we can live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, those are the three areas that are most keenly felt as broken by the fall. Self-controlled, how we relate to ourselves. Upright, how we relate to others around us. Godly, how we relate to God. So as we look at this, Paul is saying in this in-between time, because it's not perfect yet, because everything is not fixed, because we don't live in a world that's free from brokenness, free from sin, free from pain and hate and discord and all that stuff. We don't. So we as Christians need to put off, to turn away from, to renounce that which is wrong, bad, evil. We need to turn toward that which is good, what's holy, what's more Christ-like. But so far, okay, so far, this is pretty standard, like, self-improvement stuff, though, isn't it? And is that what Paul's saying? Christ has come, he will come again, in the meantime, fix yourself. Recognize how you need to change, and then get to work, go change yourself. I want you to see in this passage, though, three very, very vital differences between what Paul is talking about here, what the New Testament talks about when it talks about transformation. The word we're going to use again is sanctification. Three very vital differences between sanctification and self-improvement. Because self-improvement is what most of us are used to. Self-improvement is when I say change, you think self-improvement. When you feel angst about change, you feel angst about trying to fix yourself. That's not what Paul's talking about here. What Paul's talking about is this process of spiritual growth called sanctification. Three things that are very different about what Paul's talking about from what we normally think of when we think about change. First of all, And he says, renounce. What he's calling us to renounce is different. Look at what it says. Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What Paul's calling us to change is not just what we do. True spiritual formation, true sanctification, spiritual growth, true change is not primarily, not primarily a change of behavior. When God changes us, he doesn't just change what we do. He changes who we are. He changes what we want. Sanctification, that kind of change, is, not inter- is, is internal, not just external. Look at it again. He says, training us to renounce ungodliness, that's who we are, unlike God, and worldly passions, passions, desires, what we want. The grace of God trains us not just to change what we do. It changes us in what we desire. And you say, well, no, 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 wait. The whole point is I want to change. I don't like the things I do. I don't want to be doing them. So if the key to change is changing what I desire, that doesn't make any sense because I don't want to be doing this stuff. But here's the truth of it, okay? And this is what, I think we all know this, but just to say it and make sure we all understand that this is true. 
We do what we love. We do. When there is conflict in our hearts over two warring, you know, desires, what we truly love wins out. What Jesus changes in us is not just surface level, I'm going to do different things. What he changes in us is the deeper core desires of our hearts. Look, in my mind, in my heart, when there's a war, in my heart between exercise and cookies, cookies win, okay? Because I love cookies a lot more than I love exercise. But what if in my heart, the war in my heart is not between cookies and exercise, it's, the, it's a war between cookies and being healthy. Or maybe not cookies, sorry, I, I love you cookies, but I'm not going to talk about you right now. What if the war in my heart is between comfort and health, or immediate pleasure and health? And that's the battleground where, and what will happen if what I really truly desire, what I really truly want, what I truly love, is the idea of being healthier, then I can, on that basic, or on that that surface level battle between cookies and exercise, it's not about the cookies and the exercise. It's about what's going on deeper down inside of me. When I say deeper down, I shouldn't be pointing at my stomach when I'm talking about this, but you know what I'm saying, okay? But the deeper down, if truly being healthy is more important to me, if I really love that more, then the immediate gratification is going to lose out to something that I love more deeply, right? Okay, maybe that's a a ridiculous example, but you understand what I mean by this. When there's something that you truly deeply love, it will lead you to do things that you normally wouldn't do. Because on the surface, while those things may go against what seems more convenient or easier, if you really truly love something or someone, you will make sacrifices based upon your love. What Scripture tells us, what Paul's alluding to here, and we see it throughout the New Testament, is that Jesus changes us, not just at that surface level, but at that deeper level. Where it's not just we do different things, but we want different things. And we want different things in such a way that it causes surface level changes. But the surface level changes aren't the point in and of themselves. Behavior, morality, is not the point of following Jesus. It's the byproduct, or as Scripture will use the term, it's the fruit of loving Him, being loved by Him, and desiring Him above other loves. Now, how does that happen? How do you go, how do you go from, I'm just going to do this, I'm going to knuckle down, I'm going to bear it, I'm just going to, because I have to, because I'm afraid of the consequences, because how do you go from that to actually like enjoying, having delight, desiring to obey? How does that happen? So that's the second thing I want you to notice, and it's here in verse 12. 
It's a little bit, this is a little bit grammar-ish, but it's not too bad, okay? We're not getting super deep on this. So look at verse 12. When it says to renounce ungodliness, it says we're trained to renounce ungodliness. Who is doing the training? Shul says, training us to renounce ungodliness. Who's doing the training? Look back at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness. God's grace, not our effort, God's grace is both the impetus and the engine of our sanctification. It's God's grace, Paul says, that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. God's grace. That's important. It's God's grace that trains us. It's not God's wisdom. It's not God's laws. It's his grace. It's not that we need to know more what the rules are. And if we just lay out the rules, and and here's how most laws work. The rules and the consequences. Tell me all the rules. Tell me the consequences. Tell me the rewards. You can do both. Here's the rules. Here's what you need to do. And and here's what will happen if you don't do it. And here's what will happen if you do do it. And, And if you lay all that out, that's not what trains us. That's not what transforms us. You can know all the rules. And you can follow the rules and still in your heart be resistant against the rules. And it's not, God's, it's not God's wisdom. It's not knowing more. It's not knowledge. Now look, I, I, I love teaching, okay? I'm a teacher. I love to learn. I love to read. Look, I, I listen to sermons for fun, okay? So just so you understand, like this is, I love knowledge. I love knowledge about God, okay? I love all that stuff. But here's what I know, and Paul is saying this, and we're going to see this over and over. You see this over and over. Knowledge alone is insufficient to change us. Knowledge by itself is not enough to transform us. You can know a whole lot about God and not be more godly. In fact, you know, and I know, some people who know a whole lot, have a whole lot of knowledge about God, and it really hasn't changed them very much in their lives. That might even be your story. That might even be my story. I don't know. But we can know a lot. In fact, I can say for myself, and the reason maybe I'm dwelling on this so much is because I can see in my own heart at times that the desire for knowledge, knowledge alone, can actually become exactly what Paul is talking about here, a worldly passion. It can be something that I just want for its own sake. That it can become almost like an idol to me, knowledge. I need more knowledge. I have to know more. I have to know more. And again, talking for myself, this is probably not you, but the more I know, the more prideful I can become. The more I can allow knowledge to push God out of the picture, if I just know enough myself, then I can be sufficient and I can change myself. I'm not saying truth is unimportant, okay? I'm not saying that truth is unimportant. I'm not saying scripture doesn't play a role in our formation. I'm not saying that. In fact, next week, we're going to talk very specifically about how scripture plays a really important role in this transformation process. But what I am saying is this, growth, 
sanctification, transformation, whatever you want to call it, growth as a Christian is not just a matter of know the rules, do the rules. It's not about knowing and doing. Okay? It's not just about having all the information and then doing what I'm supposed to do. What Paul is telling us is that we are changed, we are trained by God's grace. Laws and wisdom, they don't change our hearts. It's love that changes our hearts. Look how he goes on, verse 14. He says, in verse 13, he says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14, who? Jesus Christ, who? Gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What did Jesus do? He gave himself for us. This is what we call the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus Christ gave himself. He was perfect. He was perfectly lawless. Excuse me. He was totally not lawless. He was perfectly lawful. He was perfect in the sight of the law. We're lawless. He is perfect in the sight of the law. He was pure. We were completely and totally impure. There's nothing good within us. There's so much bad within us. Jesus was pure. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. But he gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness, to purify us in love. He did it in love, not because we earned it, not because we did anything. We, we don't follow the law to gain his approval. We don't cleanse ourselves, make ourselves better, clean up our act. He did that for us in his love, in his grace. It's the grace of God that has appeared. When we get in our heads that we have to do something, and so I've got to fix myself, and so I just need to know more, I just need to do more, and we subtly start to shift from, okay, yes, I get it that Jesus paid everything to rescue me from my sin, so therefore I need to work hard to rescue myself from my sin. It's like we talk about salvation, Paul uses the word salvation, as, and what is literally salvation means to be rescued. We're like, I've been rescued from the punishment I deserve. But then we get in our minds that it's up to us to therefore then fix ourselves. When Paul uses, I don't want to get too deep on this or too in the weeds on this, but when Paul uses the word in verse 11, salvation, we see the word salvation in the New Testament, it actually encompasses several different things. And sometimes when we talk about salvation, we think about one specific aspect of, sal of salvation, that God's grace brings us salvation, specifically what theologians would call justification, the idea that we are made right, that we are freed from the penalty of sin, but the, the, the term salvation, as it's used in the New Testament, is more than just our justification. It's more than just God declaring us righteous because of Jesus' righteousness. It's that. It's not less than that. But it's actually more than that. 
And that's where we bring in this term sanctification because it's a part of our salvation as well. Sanctification literally means, I keep using the term, literally it means to be set apart as holy. And to be set apart as holy in the New Testament, the way New Testament authors talk about it, is by becoming more and more like Christ. To become more and more like the one who rescued us. And that's a part of our salvation as well. If you are rescued by God, if you are saved by him, by his grace, then you will be transformed to be more like him over the course of this life, eventually leading up to another part of salvation that's called glorification, where it talks again, he talks about waiting for the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, because elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul will teach us and other other New Testament authors will teach us that we will be glorified with him, that we'll get to share in that glory with him. But that's very much a future thing. We're not there yet. But all of those are pieces of this salvation. We focus, we get our focus too much, I think, sometimes on our salvation is that we've been justified. That's our salvation. That's what God's grace brings to us. I'm I'm justified by his grace. Now, the sanctification part, I need to do myself. So I need to know more, I need to do more, I need to get to work on that. And Paul says over and over and over again, no, all of it, all of it is by God's grace. Because it's only God's grace, because of his sacrifice, because of his love. It's only his grace that can transform our hearts. But there's one more thing I want you to see about this in in this passage, one more thing that makes um, sanctification very, very different than what we expect, what we hope it will be, and that's this. Sanctification is not instant, okay? Now, I understand. I'm saying this is how it's different than than self-improvement. Most self-improvement plans aren't instant either, but sometimes we want that. I mean, always we want that, right? We want to be able to flip a switch. I see things I don't like about myself. I want them to be different, and it's why we, we so often center those self-improvement efforts around things like New Year's Day, right? Because I didn't like myself in 2021, but I'm going to like myself in 2022 because I'm going to change. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, Happy New Year! Hey, I'm different, right? Because <laughs> the calendar changed. Instant self-improvement, but it doesn't work. It doesn't happen, does it? We shouldn't expect it to. Look again at verse 12, the first word, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God trains us. If there's one thing we know about training, training takes time, right? If you train to do something, you're talking about a process. When somebody says, I'm in training for something, they don't mean they just went and did it and they're done. They mean they're going through a process that we know is going to take time. Also, training is a mutual endeavor. The grace of God is training us. It's working with us 
to live, to renounce ungodliness, to live self-controlled and upright. Now, this might not seem right. Again, if, if you're a Christian, if you've read scriptures, if you thought about this very much, there's a piece of this, the idea that it could take time, that doesn't quite sit right when you think about other scriptures. Okay? So, like for example, in 2 Corinthians, Paul, the same author who's writing this and using the word training here, says this, that if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is joined to Christ, if you're a believer, if you've received his grace, you are a new creation. He uses the words, a new creation. And he says the old has passed away and the new has come. The old has passed away, the new has come. It's like, so it's like final, and we read that, and scripture's like that, and we say, okay, if I believe in Jesus, then I am transformed. I am made new. I was like this, now I'm like this. That doesn't sound like a process. That sounds instant. And so if you're going to tell me that it's God's grace that changes me, and then I look at what Paul says and he says, and God's grace makes you a new creation. You were this and now you're this. Then to me, that should mean it's instant. I was this, I believed, now I'm this. It's done salvation, God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all. Isn't salvation instant? Doesn't it happen the moment I believed? How can you say this is a process? Again, here's where we're getting into multiple meanings of the word, or multiple aspects of the word salvation. Because what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians is 100% a part of salvation. It's the part we call regeneration. Regeneration or the new birth. That Paul teaches us, that the, the scripture teaches us, that all of us have within ourselves, we, we are, from our human birth, we are dead on the inside. And we must be brought back to life. And that when we believe, when we trust, when we put our faith, when God saves us, he brings us from death to life. And he does that instantly. That's not a process. Being born, a new creation, is not a gradual thing. It happens. We're not alive and then we are alive. But just because you're a new creation doesn't mean you're instantly a mature creation. Okay, think about a baby. Okay, picture in your mind a baby. I was going to put a picture of a baby up, but then I was like, everybody knows what a baby looks like, I think. So picture a baby, okay? <clears throat> a baby, a new creation. It comes into the world. It has been born. What can that baby do? Very, very, very little, right? The new parent you might even be a little bit disappointed. Because you've been looking forward to having this new creation. You finally, finally a new baby. Here it is. Doesn't really do much, right? Just kind of just lays there. Like, I mean, come on, can't you even sit up? Like it does not, babies don't do anything. What if a parent got that new baby and believed because you are a new creation, you are a human being, you should be able to do all the things a human being can do. I don't need to train you. 
Just do the stuff you need to do. You have moved. You are now a part of my family, right? Because Scripture tells us when we're saved, we're brought into the family of God. And so as a parent, I say to my baby, you are a part of my family. In this family, we do not wear diapers. That's not something we do in this family. You're a part of our family now. So walk over here and tell me about your day. Why not? Because it's a baby. Babies can't walk. They can't talk. That was the most disappointing thing to me as a new dad. I thought my babies were going to talk to me sooner. Come on, tell me what's going on. They'd be sick. I'd be like, what's wrong with you? They'd just be like, wah. I'd be like, come on, help me out here. The babies can't talk. They can't walk. They're not, they don't know how to, to use the toilet. And we know that because we say you have to potty train them. Babies, people, sounds like I'm picking on babies, all people have to grow. They have to be trained. They have to mature. It's not just a matter of the baby wasn't alive, now it's alive, boom, the end. We understand that. Physically, we understand these things. We need to understand this spiritually as well. Living things grow. When we trust in Jesus, we have life, spiritual life that we did not have before. Living things grow. We will grow spiritually, but growth is not instant. Growth takes time. And just like with a baby, some growth happens naturally and some growth requires training. And it's, it's sad and horrible, no, all, all joking aside, when a child is neglected, their growth suffers. They do not grow in the way they are supposed to because they need help. What Paul tells us here is that we are trained to grow. We are trained by the Holy Spirit. But as a child grows, their growth is not just a matter of parents doing things to them. It's a parent and a child working together to grow. And this is the kind of where I want to land this for this morning. We need to understand and recognize our sanctification, our growth, it does take time. And it is God who changes us. It is God who trains us. Ultimately, it is him who makes any changes that happen in our hearts. We can't do that. We can't change ourselves. But we're not passive in all of this either. And what we're saying is not that, just again, because of God's grace, because change is internal, because it's God ultimately through his grace that changes us, that doesn't mean that we just sit back and just whatever and just wait. And if I don't, if I don't like what I see, well, you know, maybe God just hasn't decided to change me yet. So I guess I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. I don't like what I see in myself, but, you know, I can't change my heart. So I guess I'll just go with this until whatever. That's not it at all. That's not what training looks like. I want to show you something real quick in verse th or chapter 3 of Titus 2. So if you're still in Titus 2, look down. Verse 3. This is, again, Paul's giving instructions to Titus. 
Look what he says. Remind them. So he's saying all these people, all these different groups we've talked about. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy. What's he giving him? What's he telling him, him, Titus, to teach to the people in his church? That's a bunch of verbs. That's a bunch of stuff to do. Be submissive. Be obedient. Be ready for. Speak. Avoid. These are actions. We are invited into the process of change. It is God who changes us, but we are invited into that process. So this is where we want to go in this series, okay? Over the next four weeks, we want to approach, what does this look like? How do we actively participate in God transforming our desires? Because again, we're saying, it's not the same as just human will, self-effort. It's not just no more, do more. It's not, here's a list of things that you haven't changed about yourself, now go fix them. What does it look like to be a part of God's transformative process in our own lives? I hope you're asking that question along with me because that's where we're going for the next four weeks. And so we're going to start there next week. For this week, though, here's where I want to kind of wrap up, okay? Sometimes, I'd say oftentimes, in our lives, we can feel stuck. We can get to a place where we feel incredibly discouraged. We start talking about change, and I don't know about you, but I definitely in my heart can start to feel, look, I've, I've tried. I've tried to change. I've read all the books. I've made all the resolutions. I've committed myself and recommitted myself over and over and over again. And look, it's January 2nd. I feel like I'm in the exact same place I was January from the past two years, the past seven years, the past 20 New Year's. It just feels like the same thing over and over and over. Why even try anymore? Here's what I want you to hear this morning, please. God's grace has appeared. The past, your failure, is in the past. You are loved, not because you have changed or will change or could change. You are loved because Jesus gave himself to redeem you, redeem you from your failure, redeem you from your sin. God's grace is sufficient. And he is inviting you to walk in obedience to him. You can be free from the habits and the patterns of sin that you feel so perpetually stuck in. You can be free. You can change. It starts, it starts with believing in God's grace, because it's only God's grace that has the power to transform you. Change is possible. It's possible through Jesus, 
through his love. Let's pray. We're going to celebrate communion together. And then we're going to worship some more in song together. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for even though we are impure, even though we do fail and continue to fail, you love us anyway. By your grace alone, through your mercy alone, you have rescued us. You have justified us. Thank you so much for that love. God, I pray that you would inspire us. Help us to believe that we can be free from those sins that seem to drag us down, those those places that we feel so stuck that we so often just want to give up and throw up our hands. God, you love us. You want to train us to follow you. Help us to see that, to trust in you, to believe that our sins really are covered over by your love and that you really are a big enough God to help us be free from those sins. Help us as we move into this new year together to love and support each other in the way you love us. In your name we pray, amen.